0: Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org.
1: It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Together today with our political analysts, Sarah Mitchell, the F. Wendell Miller Professor of Political Science at the University of Iowa. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Jonathan Hasid with us as well, Associate Professor of Political Science at Iowa State University in Ames. Jonathan, welcome to you. Hi, Ben. We want to welcome our listeners as well. As always, we'll be uh, surveying a well, half dozen or so uh, political items this hour. If you don't have this number Noted on your fridge or wherever you like to keep it close to you, make note 1 780 9100. Join our conversation 1 866 780 9100 or email us river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Uh, former Vice President Pence in Iowa today, our Clay Masters covering that. We'll hear his coverage later. Um, also, Nikki Haley planning to visit the state as well after declaring her candidacy the first official uh, challenge to, to former President Trump for that GOP nomination for the 2024 race. We want to talk a little bit later about the surge of Republican candidates coming to state after a, a relatively quiet period. Uh, quiet month, at least compared to four years ago. I I think. Also later we'll do some international uh, politics, since uh, we have the expertise of Sarah and Jonathan with us. Uh, what the balloon saga, the spy balloon saga, says about Sino-American relations and that meeting of NATO defense ministers in Brussels at such a critical juncture in the Ukraine war. Uh, Also, we want to talk about what's been happening in the Iowa legislature. Uh... Concerning education. What a flurry of activity there. But first, I, I feel uh, Sarah and Jonathan, uh, we need to address uh, gun legislation um, after the school shooting at Michigan State University earlier this week. Three students killed, five more injured. Uh, this morning, we heard in our news the gunman in the racist massacre at a Buffalo supermarket last year sentenced to life in prison without a chance of parole. Uh, yesterday, also, the five-year anniversary of the deadly high school shooting in Parkland, Florida. 14 students killed three faculty members at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Um, yesterday, President Biden, saying there's much more work to be done on gun control legislation, he named banning assault-style weapons, typically used in the mass shootings. Uh, he also um, brought Democrats and Republicans together to pass bipartisan gun safety bill last year, said more needs to be done. Um, those high-capacity magazines he's targeting, uh, also eliminating immunity for gun man- manufacturers manufacturers who knowingly put weapons of war on our streets. Uh, Jonathan, to you first, prospects for more gun legislation, especially with this new divided Congress?
2: Uh, depressingly low. Um, you know, America obviously has a serious gun problem. There are more guns in the United States per capita than anywhere on, else on Earth. And, you know, that's in large part why we have all these shootings. But uh, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of prospect for change on the horizon. Uh, even Biden, if he wanted to do executive orders, for example, is even pretty limited in what he can do there. So uh, President Trump, for example, when he was in office, uh, banned by executive order bump stocks that turn semi-automatic weapons into Basically, full automatic weapons, and the courts struck that down as an executive overreach. Uh, so, you know, legislation will have to go through Congress, which means going through the uh, GOP-controlled House, and uh, prospects, uh, frankly, seem pretty remote. If, if anything, uh, I would expect the GOP House to push for further gun loosening of further gun laws rather than tightening
1: them. Right, right, and and just to put the the headlines that I mentioned a moment ago in perspective: mass shootings, gun murders, generally garnering. Uh, garnering more media media attention of the, um, you know, over 45,000 people dying in this country from gun-related injuries of all causes. Uh, more than half were suicides, uh, but also uh, some uh, nearly 20,000 of those, um, 19,000 in 2020, uh, were homicides, according to the CDC. And those have been increasing year after year. Um, uh, the, the trend I- I- is upward. Uh, Sarah, let me pose to you this question. What do you see, if anything, um, uh, supposing you agree with Jonathan, what do you suppose, if anything, uh, will change the status quo policy, the impasse over what to do about gun violence in this country, the partisan narratives that have developed and hardened?
3: Uh, Well, first of all, let me say as a Michigan State alumni that my heart goes out to all Spartans everywhere. Um,
1: I didn't the, know that I'm, the, so, I'm sorry to hear that yeah the, the shooting
3: know. actually happened in a building where my graduate offices was uh, oh, when no. I was a grad student. yeah um, so yeah this one hits really close to home for me mm. um, And also as a college professor you know uh, this is another hit feeling it hits home. If you remember here at the University of Iowa in 1991 there was a mass shooting by a graduate student that killed five individuals. Uh, and that was, you know, the Michigan State incident brings a number of mass shootings at colleges since 1966 to 12, but there's also been over 300 instances of gunfire on college campuses um, outside of those mass shootings, uh, killing 94 and injuring 215. So this is, um, now, certainly, if you compare college campus violence to violence more generally in America, uh, it, it's, it's not uh, as violent. Uh, so, you know, active shooter incidents um, have a- averaged, you know, 8.5 from 2000 to 2009, and now are averaging 2- 24.5 uh, a year since 2010. So, uh, so we, we're definitely, I think this is reflective, right, of that more general trend. Um, unfortunately, you know, I mean, I think in general, uh, 57% of Americans want stricter U S gun laws. That was from Gallup data in November. But if you look at the partisan breakdown, it's 86% of Democrats, 60% of independents and 27% of Republicans. So there's a very, uh, sharp difference across, uh, you know, in terms of partisan, uh, preference. And so I think, um, I agree with Jonathan that, that getting a change, you know, uh, maybe the bill last summer that was passed, the Protecting Our Kids Act is a good example, where, you know, 15 GOP senators voted for that, including uh, Joni Ernst. And so I think there are some actions that could be taken um, that could get buy-in from both parties. But, but in general, I think this is an issue that really divides people along mm-hmm. partisan lines.
1: Yeah. And let me throw this in there at, at a state level um this in Iowa news uh, Iowa's public funds could not make investments based on political or environmental factors under proposal from uh, Governor Reynolds. This is a study Senate study bill that would prohibit Iowa public funds including its pension programs from contracting with investment firms that factor in social issues when managing a portfolio. These are so-called ESG, this is so-called ESG investing. Um, Perhaps um, listeners invest that way, uh, sometimes known as environmental, social, and governance investing. Now, if this bill in our state becomes law, Iowa's public money couldn't get pulled out of investments in firearms or, or fossil fuels because of philosophical uh, disagreements, um, whether socially or environmentally harmful. Um, the, the funds must be then invested, according to this bill, based solely on what will earn the most money. Uh, so, so, Jonathan, comment on this. This is a, another case of Biden calling for more gun restrictions, but then we have the Republican-led states working at odds it seems in in uh, uh, in not sort of trying to find a solution uh, by making gun manufacturers feel the pain in their bottom line.
2: Yeah, that's the idea, I suppose, of the ESG investing, right? Is to div- divest of uh, things like oil companies and um, gun manufacturers that are seen as uh, by many as uh, you know public dangers but this is you know in Iowa this is seems to be a, a solution in search of a problem uh, apparently there is no ESG investing at this with state money currently hmm. so this is banning something that doesn't happen yet um, and uh, you know it's, it's it seems to me more of a culture wars kind of a message than anything else a way to uh, for uh, Iowa republicans to you know assure their base that they're trying to take seriously their concerns and ins- you know ensure that Iowa as if it ever would Iowa doesn't become you know a california or something but uh, you know again this is uh not a current practice of the Iowa government no one is talking about having Iowa invest in esg funds and so this is it's it's a signal essentially it's a, it's it's red meat to the republican base rather than a serious attempt to address a serious Iowa issue
1: mhm before the break, I wanted to, to, to have you comment on the flurry of uh, activity in Des Moines at the legislature, uh, lawmakers, GOP lawmakers, and the governor focusing on changes to education. Um, have you comment on what has already been passed, and uh, signed into law, bills also advancing in the legislature? We have the um, um, uh, this uh, several to do with the transgender identity, parental consent before a school could call a transgender student by a name or pronouns. Also, schools um, couldn't not knowingly withhold information about a student's gender identity or their intention to transition to a different gender. Also, curriculum involved here, prohibiting Iowa schools uh, from including gender identity in kindergarten through eighth grade instruction. Um, And also, uh, a bill that would uh, put any successfully challenged school library book on a statewide list requiring students in other districts also to get parental permission before checking these, uh, uh, these uh, books out. And uh, it would cause, uh, it, it could, uh, you know, cause uh, these books would be perhaps removed uh, unless there was uh, parental consent, uh, books that were considered obscene from libraries, and, and a way also to restrict schools that teach about systemic racism. Let's listen to... Um, let's save that for for, for after the break, but have your general comments, uh, first of all, uh, Sarah, you first, on uh, the flurry of legislation, some which has passed, uh, some which looks like it has a good chance of passing.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think this is part of the broader, you know, cultural agenda that you're seeing not only in Iowa, but in in states like Florida as well. Um, So the Florida move to, right, to remove the, African American studies uh, AP class from the, the state's curriculum and and now getting sort of escalating that conflict with the college board um, but I think um, you know I think they're they're enacting these kind of policies because that that's you know what they think the base I think that the base is interested in, in pursuing this kind of agenda. So okay. I think this is just good politics for the GOP in Iowa.
1: Okay. We'll have Jonathan's comment on this as well as hear um, some audio from a Des Moines school board chair in just a moment. When we return, one eight six six seven eighty ninety one hundred river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Back in just a moment.
0: Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at
1: upstreamfm.com. We're back with more of this Wednesday Politics uh, Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. Jonathan Hasid of Iowa State University, Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa, uh, giving us their thoughts on some of the latest political developments here in the state uh, nationwide. We'll talk about those and also um, uh, foreign policy, uh, both of Uh, Both of our uh, experts uh, this hour do have um, foreign policy expertise. Join our conversation, 1-866-780-9100. River to River at iowapublicradio.org. Let's continue with our conversation, uh, picking up uh, from before the break. Uh, This is the Des Moines School Board Chair, uh, Terry Caldwell Johnson, this week. She is African-American, we should note, uh, responding to the multiple Republican-led bills that would ban teaching about gender identity and put any successfully challenged school library book on a statewide List uh, Requiring students in other districts to get parental permission before checking that book out. Uh, This is audio from a public event held at East High School uh, Monday. Caldwell Johnson said they would absolutely not ban books regarding LGBTQ families, slavery and racism.
3: You know, I know my history and my history is important to me, but it's equally important to everyone else. You know, we
0: have students of all races, colors, ethnicities, backgrounds, gender identities, and they deserve to be represented in everything we
3: do, in what we present, and also in how we present. So I say absolutely not, not on my watch.
1: Jonathan Hasid, comment on this uh, culture battle spilling into politics. Yeah, you know, it's... uh, It seems to
2: something that was really accelerated by Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, uh, who, as Sarah mentioned, has gone after the African-American AP program and now AP programs more generally. Uh, Also, there's patent legislation in Florida where essentially all books were removed from Florida classrooms until they were approved by a media specialist. And, uh, you know, it it strikes me that so, you know, I. trained in in Chinese politics, and the way Chinese journalists censor themselves is mostly with self-censorship. There's a climate of uncertainty, no one knows exactly where the limits of the permissible are, and that encourages a lot of self-censorship. It seems to me that the similar dynamics are happening here. You know, teachers aren't necessarily going to know what books, principals aren't going to know what books are approved. Mm. And so the people are likely to be much more conservative. They're likely to pull out any kind of controversial books. In other words, it's not necessarily the impact of banning individual books that will have the the biggest impact on school libraries across the state, but rather creating a chilling climate. Mm -hmm. Um, that discourages uh, any kind of inquiry into these controversial areas. And you're going to have, especially if, uh, as in Florida, there are felony penalties attached to providing these books to students, uh, you're likely to have just people stepping back uh, from any kind of controversial topic, uh, which is really antithetical to the entire idea of schooling, it seems to me. Uh, And so this is a, you know, it's a sort of a sad commentary on where we are as a country.
1: Yeah. Sarah, do you agree with Jonathan's uh, analysis there, a chilling effect, whether it has to do with uh, slavery, racism in this country, um, uh, or uh, gender identity?
3: Yeah, absolutely. You know, banning the teaching of systemic racism is systemic racism. You know, it, and there's a certain irony for, you know, if if there's a position that, you know, I don't want people to tell me that what I can do with my guns or whether I can own them, but I'm okay with them telling me what books I can read. Right. Um, I just think there's an inconsistency in terms of, you know, how personal freedom um, so personal freedom is okay for some issues, but not for others. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, right. We live in an era of the internet. So they're not talking about banning phones in schools, even though phones would give them access to lots of content, right, on the Internet. There are, in fact, libraries across the country that are providing free content of all, all of their holdings. Um, so it's not like removing a physical book from a library is going to change the access that individuals have to these books.
1: Yeah, Um Ralph, one of our listeners, uh, wanting to comment on our earlier discussion of ESG investing. Uh, Ralph writes, pushing back, what is so wrong about socially responsible investments? I don't want public investments into Russia or North Korea, he writes. I do not want public investments into businesses that deny the history of slavery in our country. Would this bill prohibit this type of uh, in, these type of investment decisions, uh, Ralph asks. I don't know if either of you have the answer to to that
3: yeah I think the idea is that the the businesses that they're they're naming in the bill like fossil fuels or gun manufacturers these are you know businesses that have lobbied for this kind of protection and so I think this is you know pretty straightforward uh, you know this is being passed by a GOP led legislature because they're getting more, uh, you know, campaign donations from these kind of industries. And so, Mm -hmm. and then also pushing back on the other side, right? So any kind of uh, policy, you know, uh, liberal policy that would say prohibit um, exporting things to Israel, you know, certain goods um, because of their treatment of the Palestinians. Well, they're also pushing back so that that kind of same kind of equivalent move on the left would not be allowed, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Let's go to our uh, first caller. Ron is is calling. Uh, thanks for mm-hmm. listening to uh, IPR Politics Wednesday. Ron, what's on your mind?
2: Thanks. <clears throat> if one Iowa parent objected to the King James translation of the Bible because they think it talks about deviant gay sex at Sodom and Gomorrah, because of the hundreds of concubines, I think that was King Solomon, because of slavery, which is very widely talked about in the Bible.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Would only the King James Version be banned from all school libraries, or would the dozens of other translations of Hebrew and Christian scriptures be banned also, because it's really the same book?
1: Hmm. Ron, you pose an interesting uh, hypothetical question. Jonathan, what are your thoughts on that?
2: I have no idea uh, whether or not banning one version of the Bible, say the King James Version, would ban others. Um, I, I mean, the, Ron is right that, of course, the Bible has lots of sex. It has, you know, uh, the story of Lot and his daughters uh, sleeping with incest and families and all kinds of uh, odd things. And so you could imagine parents objecting to the Bible Uh, that, of course, would uh, undoubtedly, especially if if, if, uh, one district's ban then becomes a statewide ban. Then, you know, liberal parents in uh, Des Moines or Ames or Iowa City could have the Bible banned in libraries across the state, which will undoubtedly cause an uproar, whether whether it'll extend (laughs) to other versions of the Bible. I'm not sure, but it will certainly um, turn what the GOP has tried to do on its head yeah In an interesting way,
1: yeah Sarah. any comment before we move on on that point ron 's <laughs> point <laughs> interesting
3: it it's a good strategy
1: I think. <laughs> Let me get your views on this before we move on, also keeping with state politics. Iowa lawmakers considering eliminating a requirement that schools inform students about. HPV vaccine uh, this is a vaccine that prevents certain cancers and uh, parents of uh, children, adolescents, uh, uh, will certainly be aware of this vaccine. Now under current law Iowa schools provide information on the availability of a vaccine for the human papillomavirus when teaching on human growth and development or health education. This proposal would strike that requirement, uh, a bill that advanced out of the Iowa House on Monday. Uh, The human papillomavirus is the most commonly sexually transmitted disease. Now, infections go away, uh, typically, according to the CDC but cause cancer in some cases. Um, So this is interesting. Some Republican lawmakers saying schools should not be weighing in on family decisions surrounding vaccinations, medical professionals disagreeing, saying that students should not uh, uh, the, with this, that they should receive the information on the HPV vaccine, citing their research. Sarah, what do you make of this debate? It seems to have echoes of the partisan divide over the COVID vaccinations.
3: Yeah, and I think we're back to this question of personal freedom, right? Like, I'm supposed to have a personal freedom to choose what vaccines I want for myself or my children,
0: mm-hmm.
3: but I'm now passing a, a proposing a bill that says that I can't even discuss that vaccine in a public school setting. So again, I just think this is a it's a hypocrisy uh, in terms of, you know, is do we want the government out of our lives or do we want the government to be intimately in our lives and tell us everything in terms of yeah. what kind of information we can receive? And in this I'm, one yeah. it strikes me as you know, is particularly problematic because there's a lot of evidence showing that uh, for girls that get this vaccine, they're they're significantly less likely to get cervical cancer. And so, in, from a health perspective, um, I would definitely want my daughter to have a lower risk of cervical cancer in the future. Um, so, this is one that I think I, I don't really, I don't quite understand. Yeah, the, I, I the think motive behind this. If specific I'm specific, under- though.
1: If I'm understanding this bill correctly, it would strike the requirement uh, that they provide this information on the availability of vaccine. I don't think it prohibits the discussion of it in a in a health curriculum. But um, uh, that uh, we, we'll leave that for a, another time, perhaps to pick up here. Let's go to national politics here. If you've just joined us, it's a politics Wednesday edition of River to River from. Iowa Public Radio News, Ben Kiefer with Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa, Jonathan Haseed of Iowa State University. Uh, yesterday, we heard that uh, uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein, a Democrat of California, what a name, 89 years old, announced that she will not seek re election in 2024. She'll finish out her term, though, in Congress. Um, according to the New York Times, uh, Feinstein has had acute short term memory issues for years that have raised concerns. Among those who interact with her, the former mayor of San Francisco, she's been in the Senate since the 80s, since the 90s, uh, a trailblazer for Democrats. Jonathan, Uh, how much of a surprise here? What does it uh, trigger? Of course, uh, um, names popping up who would like to fill that Senate spot for this state with 40 million residents of the U.S. in it.
2: Of course, being a California senator is a very prominent thing. I I don't think it's terribly surprising that Feinstein has stepped down, that the sort of chatter about her mental acuity has really picked up in recent years. uh, And she, you know, seems to be uh, tired. I mean, it'd be hard being a senator is a hard job and it'd be tough to do at 89. So it's not not that surprising in this case that she's stepping down. But her uh, she's opened up, uh, you know, a a, a huge uh, opportunity for Democrats in California. And so lots of. uh, People are going to likely to get into this race. Um, they're, they're, Adam Schiff, perhaps, who's a current uh, U.S. congressman, um, may get into the race. Um, other potential uh, members in, in, in the California legislature, California politics may get involved. And of course, this is likely, very likely, uh, to be held by Democrats. Uh, California has a strange kind of a primary, and so it's not impossible that a Republican could, could win. Uh, but given, given that it's California, it's highly unlikely and so, um, you know, this is a a very prominent position, and it's not surprising to see a whole bunch of politicians uh, dipping their toe in the
1: waters. Yeah, Sarah, could could you comment on Feinstein? I mean, what she's meant to the Democratic Party nationally? A, a bit about her legacy. What comes to mind uh, f- for you?
3: Um, I mean i I believe that she was the person who was behind the investigation of what happened during the Bush administration and the enhanced interrogation program. Mm -hmm. Um, so there was a, a really good movie about that. Um, and so that was, that was something that she spearheaded to, to uh, have accountability, um, over that particular program. Um, I also, um, yeah, I mean, if you think about California as the importance of the state, like, if it were its own country, it would be the fifth largest country in the world. Um, So uh, uh, just behind Germany and ahead of India. So that gives you a sense, right. Of the, the importance of this seed. And I think, um, and we have some very good candidates, right. Katie Porter, Adam Mm -hmm. Schiff. Um, So I think it's, it's going to be a very competitive race uh, and, and it'll be interesting to watch.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, after a relatively quiet period here in Iowa regarding campaign visits for 2024, at least when you uh, measure it according to what was happening in this state four years ago, um, we have quite a bit of activity. Former Vice President Mike Pence in Iowa today, uh, in Cedar Rapids, I I believe. Uh, Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina president, Governor, also former U.N. ambassador under President Trump, planning to campaign across Iowa after announcing her 2024 campaign. Uh, Let's listen to a bit of the presidential campaign video released uh, by her yesterday. Haley pointing out that Republicans have lost the popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections, which she says has to change. She also stated that our nation's past is not racist or evil And uh, that is what she saw, in fact, uh, she saw evil in China and Iran.
3: Some people look at America and see vulnerability. The socialist left sees an opportunity to rewrite history. China and Russia are on the march. They all think we can be bullied, kicked around. You should know this about me. I don't put up with bullies. And when you kick back, it hurts them more
1: if you're wearing heels. Okay, former South Carolina governor, former UN ambassador Nikki Haley, first official challenge uh, to the former president uh, Trump in the Republican column. Uh, Jonathan, you're a China expert. She mentioned China there. Uh, comment on on her entry here.
0: Yeah,
2: I'm not sure what. There's a lot I can work in about China here, but you know, I I think. Uh, There's a certain irony in her uh, announcement that she stands up to bullies, uh, given, of course, that she was a member of the Trump administration and refuses to go after Donald Trump by name. So she's clearly trying to seize a lane if it exists on the Republican side uh, that uh, is, you know, anti-Trump, but for Trump's policies, wants to see somebody else, but also is not fully behind DeSantis. And it seems to me that she's trying to thread an exceedingly thin needle. Uh, And, you know, uh, she and Mike Pence are both polling around 3% in the early polls. Now, it's, of course, not impossible that that support will grow, Uh, but... She's essentially trying to offer something to both the Trump and anti-Trump wing of the GOP in a way that I don't I don't think I don't see how it's going to work. She, of course, was a member of the Trump administration. She's not attacking Donald Trump personally. She's merely obliquely criticizing him for being too old and saying that it's time for some new blood. Um, I just don't know that there's a huge constituency for what she's trying to do inside the contemporary GOP. Uh, And so it it seems unlikely to me that she's going to be the Republican nominee. But, of course, it's early days and stranger things have happened.
1: Mm -hmm. Sarah, we have about a minute before we go to break. We can continue the conversation after the break, of course. But in in a minute or less, uh, your comment on Nikki Haley's entry.
3: Well, I thought the, the heel comment was interesting because given what we just discussed with cultural issues generally, um, I don't know that that's (laughs) emphasizing gender is a path for getting more support, Um, but I do think, you know, she's going to highlight her foreign policy experience as UN ambassador, her executive experience as South Carolina governor, um, and she's really pushing on her young age, right? She's 51. And she said in her speech today that America is not past its prime. It's just that our politicians are past theirs. And so I think um, you're going to see her try to position herself as a younger, uh, you know, younger option in the
1: Nikki Haley heading to Iowa in the coming days. Former Vice President Mike Pence in Iowa today. We'll hear reports from Clay Masters on that a bit later. Let's talk about uh, the vice, uh, former Vice President Pence when we return with Sarah Mitchell and Jonathan Haseed. I'm Ben Kiefer. It's River to River from IPR News.
0: Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com.
1: We are back with a River to River edition, Politics Wednesday edition of River to River. Ben Kiefer here with Sarah Mitchell and Jonathan Haseed, our two analysts. Jonathan from Iowa State University, Sarah from the University of Iowa. Let's press on as we talk about 2024, over 20 months uh, before Election Day in 2024. But that's how we do it in this country, I guess. Um, let's talk about the former Vice President, Mike Pence. He's in Cedar Rapids today uh, to rally conservatives, according to reports, around parental uh, parents, parents' Rights, uh, that agenda targeting uh, transgender-affirming public school policies, uh, like the one that drew controversy in the Linmar Community School District uh, last year. I'm amused to also, based on what you said before the break, uh, this is a New York Times headline. They're trying to topple Trump, but they barely utter his name. So let's let's uh, dissect this a little bit with Mike Pence as challenge. You talk about polls before. We have the new Reuters Ipsos poll released yesterday. Four percent of registered Republicans supporting Nikki Haley. Far behind tr- Trump, 43 uh, percent. Uh, Ron DeSantis, 31 percent. But then we have Mike Pence at 7 percent percent. Uh, Sarah, uh, talk, talk about Mike Pence and the challenge he faces.
3: Yeah, I think, um, you know, he's he's his group is funding ads that will, um, you know, go against these transgender affirming policies that you just mentioned. So he's definitely uh, doubling down right on what we're seeing in, in terms of the broader uh, legislative session um, on these cultural issues. I think he's also, though, having to thread a needle here in terms of what's happening on these other investigations. Um, and so uh, Jack Smith, who is uh, the special counsel on the January 6th events, uh, uh, you know, has subpoenaed him, and he's trying to get out of that by, you know, using the the Constitution's speech and debate clause. Um, but. If you remember, Lindsey Graham uh, tried to invoke the same clause uh, to try to not testify in Georgia, and it, it didn't work there, and I don't think it's going to work for, for Pence in this situation. Um, and so I think it's going to be difficult for him because if he gets uh, sucked into these <laughs> questioning about uh, some of those situations, um, that could put him in more of a direct um Conflict, I guess, with Trump, depending on what he says in those uh, in those kind of um, questionings.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, let's mesh the foreign policy with the domestic politics in the Chinese spy balloon saga that we've been experiencing over the past few days. Um, in the latest, the White House says there is no indication that three flying objects blasted out of the sky over the weekend by the U.S. military are linked to alleged. Chinese spying. Uh, The objects, uh, according to spokesman John Kirby, may be, quote, tied to commercial or research entities and therefore benign. Um, Beijing accusing the U.S. earlier of, uh, I guess this would be the translation, Jonathan, a trigger-happy overreaction. <laughs> that was in this first UFO. Well, it was a balloon. It was identified. But the one that caused, uh, well, set off this furor here in the U.S., U- China denying that one of its balloons destroyed by a U.S. fighter uh, days ago off of the South Carolina coast after crossing the entire uh, North American continent was being used for espionage, saying merely it was a weather-monitoring airship that had blown off course. Jonathan, I've been looking forward to your commentary on the Chinese spy balloon saga.
2: Yeah, I mean, the the Chinese explanations, such as they are, are ludicrous. It was clearly a spy balloon. Uh, My guess is that it, it, it flew because of and we're starting to get some indications from this from uh, the media that it flew because of, uh, of bureaucratic inertia so that it was uh, Xi Jinping undoubtedly approved a balloon program years ago and then the flights just sort of happened of their own accord. I doubt he was personally approving uh, every mission, you know, I um When there were U-2 spy flights over the Soviet Union in the 1960s, Eisenhower, to my understanding, approved the program without necessarily approving individual flights and then was very embarrassed, of course, when Francis Gary Power was shot down in 1960. I suspect that a similar thing has happened here. The funny thing for me is that the Chinese government can't seem to get its story straight. At first, they said they expressed regret about the balloon. Now they've sort of dialed that back and say, oh, no, it's not. You know, it's a weather balloon. And now they've gone further to say that the US has sent at least 10 similar balloons over China, all without providing any evidence, of course. Um, it's, I mean, it, it, there is, the Chinese do have a, a legitimate point, which is that um, the, you know, the US has perhaps become overly panicked about what are fairly routine objects up in space. And, you know, I think Biden. Ordered a number of shootdowns of these to sort of uh, try to appear calm and perhaps assuage the growing panic in the American population, a panic which is probably unwarranted. Uh, you know, it's uh, no no one wants to have spy balloons floating above their country or their house, uh, but. And it does give the Chinese some additional intelligence gathering ability that they wouldn't have from satellites, but it doesn't seem to be giving them a huge advantage. Most of what the balloon is providing them, they can get from other sources like overhead satellites. And so um, it's really it's a sign of how terrible Sino-US relations are that uh, two sides are getting into this kerfuffle over, uh, you know, uh, A fairly benign event in terms of uh, if you're going to violate someone's sovereignty, doing it with a balloon is probably the softest way you can do
1: it. Yeah, right. But 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 alerting those in the media, really setting off alarm bells. This has been denied in 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 recent days. But using the term UFOs and and weather aliens might be behind this. I mean, that's all been denied, but it taps into longstanding fears of of many Americans' uh, concerns. Uh, Sarah, chip in with your foreign policy expertise on this matter. Um, for instance, how would you characterize our political discussion about this over the past week or so?
3: Yeah, I think some people were disappointed when the the uh, press secretary said that there's no evidence of aliens. <laughs>
0: uh,
3: <laughs> but but no, I, I mean, I, I think um, I agree that I think there was a lot of public pressure to respond to the balloon and, and so much attention on in media and social media. So I think it was the right thing to do uh, in terms of taking it down. And, and you have to remember that a lot of our um, aerial defenses and uh, the the sort of standard operating procedures that we use were developed during the cold war and so our threat in the cold war you know was that we were worried about something much bigger than a balloon um, and so I think uh, we've been shooting down more of these things since because we've sort of started looking for uh, you know these smaller items um, and so perhaps uh, I guess maybe it's a good thing that it will get us looking for uh, different different types and sizes of objects Um, in our airspace. But I do think uh, the Biden administration was a little bit overreactive in terms of, um, you know, or at least postponing uh, Blinken's uh, meeting with Chinese officials. It it seems to me like that. I I think they could have gone ahead with the meeting. Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. Let's finish up the hour, if we could, uh, focusing on Ukraine as the one year uh, anniversary of the Russia's invasion of neighboring Ukraine uh, is just a few days away. Uh, Yesterday, the NATO General Secretary, Jens Stoltenberg, spoke to reporters following meetings of NATO defense ministers in Brussels at this uh, critical juncture uh, during the war here where were anticipating, or perhaps it's even started the uh, Russian uh, uh, offense here uh, to gain back land that uh, uh, the the Ukrainians had, uh, Ukrainians had reclaimed. Stoltenberg said that the type of support for Ukraine has evolved over the past year, and that allies have agreed over the last weeks and months to further step up significantly, and that they are, in his words, seeing the things seeing things move in the right direction in providing Ukraine ammunition.
3: The United States, France have signed the contracts, but also other allies, Germany, Norway, and there are also others who have already signed contracts with the defense industry, meaning that production is now ramping up. And uh, and and that is making a huge difference. And partly it's possible to increase
1: uh, production from the existing uh, 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 so factories, uh, capabilities, but of course, uh, you also need to
3: make new investments that will take some more time. Uh, but actually, both things are now happening, utilizing existing capacity more and investing in new production uh, uh, capacity.
1: NATO General Secretary Stoltenberg. Uh, Sarah, let's start with you this time. Uh, what stands out for you at this stage of the war?
3: Well, I think first of all, yeah, these, the emphasis on um, getting, you know, more stockpiling of ammunition is, is important because uh, Ukraine's troops are firing up to 10,000 artillery shells daily. Um, And so this has had a real draining impact on Western uh, inventories and, and, you know, Somebody said that if we were to fight Russia today, we, you know, a lot of countries could run out of ammunition and dates. Um, and so I do think this war has, um, you know, uh, brought a lot of, has shown us right where we might have gaps in those um, kind of supply chains uh, for uh, ammunition. I also think uh, the war has been, you know, incredibly costly. Maybe. I, I thought this would be a costly war, but I think it's been even more costly than I expected. So mm. uh, estimates are that Russia has suffered 180,000 dead and wounded. Uh, Ukraine has had a hundred thousand killed or wounded in action and another yeah. 30,000 civilian deaths. And that's just 11 months. Right. And that's eight times higher than American casualties in two decades of war in Afghanistan. Um, and so, uh, it's just in a sort of staggering, uh, amount of, of, uh, you know, it's been a very conventional war. It's been a very costly war. Um, and I think, uh, it's, it's not, it's very likely to end as a stalemate of some sort given, uh, mm-hmm. the kind of costly, uh, back and forth that we've seen on the ground.
1: Yeah. So much misery, so much suffering, um, by, uh, um, in, in this European war, the first, major European land war since uh, the Second World War. General Mark Milley, I see he's chair of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, saying that Russia has, in his words, lost strategically, operationally, and tactically. Uh, This is after he met with, uh, uh, met in Brussels with these defense chiefs from um, other other countries. Um, Biden, our president, has said, we are in Ukraine as long as it takes. Uh, We've heard him repeat that. He said it during the State of the Union address a few days ago. Um, I wonder, Jonathan, are we seeing any kind of softening of financial aid, military support for Ukraine uh, from this divided Congress? We have some new dynamics there in Washington, don't we?
2: We do. It's We're starting to see some rhetorical shifts. So, uh, you know, polling of, um, of Republicans has shown that Uh, Support for Ukraine and support for giving additional armaments and money to Ukraine has really dropped over the last six months or so, Uh, and so there seems to uh, be—it doesn't seem to have hardened. uh, You know, not numbers don't seem to have shifted nearly as much among Democrats and Independents, and so this once again seems to be a story of what's happening inside the Republican Party. There are those like uh tucker carlson of course is a very prominent one of the loudest voices on the right basically you know on a lot of his uh shows saying that the u.s needs to stop doing this and that does seem to be having an effect we'll see if it plays out in congress uh, of course biden can't just appropriate money by snapping his fingers congress has to approve a lot of this stuff and uh i hope that congress will continue to do so um, you know if there's you know maybe nobody has won this war but you know certainly russia has lost uh, and uh, it's uh, you know Support for Ukraine, it seems to me, is is vital in preserving the international order and uh, keeping, um, you know, armed militarism at bay. And so it would be a real pity if softening support among part of the not all the GOP, but part of the GOP um, led to less support for Ukraine.
1: Yeah, I guess it matters here. Uh, what your narrative is, or what your answer is to the question of what's at stake, and that can be different, can't it, Sarah? I mean, if you believe this is about something much larger than Ukraine's integrity as as a nation, uh, if you hearken back uh, to the Sudetenland, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, in 1938, um, in Hitler's advance across Europe, um, how you answer that question, what narrative you have will will um, um, determine your, your strength of support for Ukraine?
3: Absolutely. And I see this through the lens of defending territorial integrity. And if we don't defend it, it's going to fall in other places. We've already saw this week that Russia has developed plans to invade Moldova, right? And, and is a very similar kind of playbook where they've had support for Russian separatists in Moldova, um, just like they did in the Donbass, but they've also, you know, had conflicts in Georgia and Chechnya and uh, in other uh, areas, right? So, so this is this is not Russia's first gig, right? In terms of um, uh, using, uh, you know, their Ethnic ties to Russians in these territories to justify the use of force and the taking of territory, and and the danger is if we let territorial integrity norms fall, they're going to start falling other places in the world. So other, and we're already seeing right, Armenia and Azerbaijan's border right um, has been heating up. We've seen other border places like China and India. Um, So it's it's. Could have you know global uh, implications if we allow this kind of taking of territory to to go without a response?
1: Yeah, comment a little bit more about the Moldova news, Sarah, this week because it would seem, just as a non-expert in this area, Russia has more than its hands full in Ukraine. Why would it then stir up things in in Moldova?
3: Well, part of the plan of taking the coastal area of Ukraine, right, uh, and wanting to take Odessa uh, would would eventually would be to then take Moldova in the area contiguous to that so that they could control the entire Sea of Azov and access to the Black Sea. So uh, the, you know, the Russian Navy... Um, you know, has always had uh, an important uh, port, a naval port at Sevastopol, um, and and so in terms of their overall um, naval capabilities and and sea access, that's an important area that they would like to control. Now they've done a poor job, right? Their their efforts to try to take Odessa failed, um, but but that would be you know from a strategic standpoint, that's they could cut off Ukrainian. Uh, sea access, and then at the same time, um, strategically enhance their own naval position.
1: Okay. Uh, We've run out of time. Fascinating to talk about our current uh, politics, as worrying as they are on so many fronts. Sarah Mitchell, glad to have your analysis. F. Wendell Miller, Professor of Political Science at the University of Iowa. Jonathan, associate professor of political science at Iowa State University. Jonathan and Sarah, thank you again so much. Thanks, Ben. Tomorrow on this program, a recent conversation I had with political commentator Joy Reid of MSNBC. She's coming to Iowa to speak uh, this weekend. She's the daughter of two immigrants to the United States. Her parents met here in Iowa. Joy Reid on the program tomorrow. River Today, River Today, River to River Today, produced by Sam McIntosh. I'm Ben Kiefer. I'll get my tongue in order. Thanks for joining us.